somebody rich, somebody famous, somebody influential, um, who would it be and why would you choose that person? Here's the ground rules or the question. Um, they need to be living and they can't be God, Jesus, or the Holy Spirit because we're in church and you guys all know that's the right answer, right? So, oh, Jesus, of course, it's Jesus, right? So we, we know that's the, the, the answer, but apart from Jesus or God or the Holy Spirit, somebody living, you get a chance to spend an afternoon, who would you choose? Now, I know there's some people in the room that are already too cool to play the game. They got their arms crossed. They're like, nobody. Yeah, I, did this, I did this thing with uh, some, some young people that went to KA with us when we were in the room, and I asked a similar question, and, uh, and they were all like, nobody. I'm like, so you wouldn't want to hang out with LeBron James? No. I'm like, yeah, really? Okay. So we can all be cool, but really, if you're going to ask a question, I asked it on Facebook, actually, and I was amazed at all the response I got. There was just a, a long thread of people who responded, and really, their responses, it was not only entertaining to read it, it was really fascinating to me to read all of the different reasons why people chose who they chose. Um, I think, you know, the, the names that came up, remember, it couldn't be Jesus or God, but the names that we heard were Pope Francis, Carol Burnett, I wouldn't have expected to see that, George W. Bush, J-Lo, because she has a fascinating story, that was one of my favorites. That's why I would want to meet with her too, right? She's so fascinating. Uh, Stephen King, Billy Graham, Tony Robbins, David Crowder, Bobby Flay, Beth Moore, Yo-Yo Ma, Heidi Baker, Warren Buffett, Bono, and there were many more, all for a wide, different, wide array of people for a wide array of reasons. You know, I didn't answer the question on Facebook, and a lot of people said, well, who is it for you? And I said, you got to come on Sunday, and I'll tell you. There was a lot of people that came to mind, but you know, one person that I would love to spend an afternoon with is President Obama, and I would just like to have a conversation with him. I would just like to know what he really thinks. I would like to know what he really believes. I would like to know how, where he really stands with Jesus. I would like to know really what his, his views are because the problem is I don't believe anything I hear. Whether you are hearing it from the left or the right, he's either the, the, the savior or he's the devil, right? And there's, just, there's no in between. And so I think whatever image you have on either side is probably not very accurate. So I would just love to, to know, like, what do you really like? Like, what's Obama really like? And I'd also like to just have a conversation about how unbelievably hard and difficult it must be to lead one of the most powerful countries in the world. I think we would all recognize that that's a pretty enormous job. One of the reasons why we're called to pray for our leaders regularly. Um, I'd love to sit with the, the emergency uh, manager of the Detroit Public Schools. And I'd love to tell him about SOAR and the impact we're having with kids through the reading program. And I'd love to say to him, look, if you could get behind us, we could do this all over the city of Detroit and turn the education system on its head. So. So that would be a great conversation to have, you know, some afternoon if, if, it, if it came about. All kinds of reasons, and the reasons were fascinating. Some of it was just, for some people, it was just curiosity. I just, I want to know what the person's like, kind of like me and the, the Obama thing, right? And some of it was, uh, it was an education thing, like they know something that I wish I know. I want to hang out with Warren Buffett. He obviously knows a few things that might be helpful in my investment strategy, right? And some of it was just a sense of awe. I want to be near that person because they're just incredible to me. I just want to, I want to be near their, you know, the, the, the awesomeness of the person. Some of it was just because the person was, was beautiful. You know, I just, I'm, I'm attracted to the person. So there's all kinds of reasons that people wanted to, to be with, with whomever they picked. Who's the person that you would choose? Really, just, just think about it for a minute. Don't be too cool to play the game. And just think about the reason why. Why would you choose that person? Who's the person you would choose if you had total access to him for an af afternoon? So here's the deal. The question kind of came out of my quiet time early in the week. I was out for a long walk, and I was thinking about 
the idea that what I was going to be talking about was the presence of God. That's kind of the, 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 the talk today. And I was thinking about, do I, am I as excited about spending time with God, about being in the presence of God, as I would be if someone on my list were to call me up and say, hey, let's spend the afternoon together. Would I be as willing to shift my entire schedule to do whatever it took to be with God? And, and then I just got thinking about that whole process. Like, like what is it that, that keeps us from wanting to spend time with God the way that we should? And it, it kind of begs the question, doesn't it? Do we really have the ability to hang out with God? Do we really have the ability to spend quality time with God, And if we do, what is it in us that keeps us from pursuing that? What is it in us that keeps us from, from grabbing onto that? That's kind of the, what we're going to talk about today. That's the, the thesis, if you will, of what I want to go through. So grab your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 27, first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 27. We're going to read verses 45 through 51. And while you're looking for that, a couple things. I want to remind you to bring your Bibles or whatever you read in. If you use a, 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 an iPad or whatever, note-taking um, Um, You can do, we want you to take notes. What we know is that if you read along, if you take a few notes, that you're going to retain much more of what's taught. And what I love is, I even heard this week, it's so cool to see more and more people bringing their Bibles, breaking out their Bibles, taking notes in their Bibles, and we want to encourage you to do that. So we're going to read Matthew 27, and I just want to kind of catch you up as to, to what we're reading about. This is Matthew's description of the passion of Christ. Do you know what the word passion means? Because the word passion has kind of been hijacked. It means something different. To us, passion means like uh, uh, it almost is associated with lust or, or love or there could be a sexual connotation to it or it could be a perfume made by Calvin Klein. But there's this, there's this thing about passion, right? It means something to us. But when, when we use the passion of Christ, we're actually using it in the same way you would word, use the words the suffering of Christ, and I've been thinking about this a lot this week, but, but if you think about suffering and you think about passion and you think about love, the truth of the matter is those three words actually do fit together more than we realize because true love always has with it an element of sacrifice. True love for someone else, true love given to anything else will always involve some sort of suffering. Ask anyone who's gone through the death of somebody they love. Sit with the Schultz family and find out. There is an element when you give your heart to someone that there's times where it's very difficult. Anyone who's lost someone knows that. Anyone who has a great marriage knows that there is an element of sacrifice and sometimes even suffering on behalf of the other person to make the marriage great. So this is the suffering of Christ. This is the love of Christ. This is the passion of Christ being described. And, and so Jesus has done his three years of ministry. He's, he's done more miracles than we can even count. The scriptures say that it couldn't even, the book couldn't even contain all that Jesus has done. He's, he's been abandoned by his friends. He's been beaten beyond recognition of a man. He's nailed to a cross and he's hanging there. And that's where we pick up the story in Matthew 27. So read with me. It says, starting in verse 45, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Elo, Elo, lama sabashani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. They said, said, no, wait, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in 
excuse me, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rock split. Verse 45 says that for three hours it was dark. I want you to just think about that for a minute. Just the, how, how that must have just caused this, this serious pause amongst the people. So, so imagine that it's the, the middle of the day. It's noon until three. And it becomes pitch dark. That the land was consumed with darkness. And the thing I thought about this week is, you know, Jesus stood in the temple just a few weeks prior to that. And he said to all of the people, I am the light of the world. And as the light of the world hangs on a cross and slowly fades to give up his spirit, he begins to die, so the light of the world goes out. And how many people were thinking, what have we done? What have we done? We've extinguished the light of the world. How many were thinking about that very thing? But what we do know is that in the Greco-Roman world, darkness meant everything that was opposed to God. Darkness, when you see anything written, even non-biblical texts, when you see the, the, the talk of darkness, it's the talk of death, it's the talk of evil, it's the talk of wickedness, it's the talk of judgment. So, so there must have been this, this fear that came over the people as the land became dark. Just another reminder to us that there was something pretty amazing going on in the, in the cosmic world as Jesus hung there on the cross. Darkness came over all the land and Jesus cried out. It's interesting to me that if you go back and you look at the word cried out in the original Greek, it's only found one time in scriptures and it's here and it actually means screamed. Jesus screamed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we were at new member class last week, it was a great group of people and we had a, 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 a great new member class, but we got talking about the Trinity and how this is a foundational biblical truth that this church is, is built on. That God exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's an important part of our, our theology. It's an important part of, of how we uh, believe God moves in our church. And that we need to be aware of all three persons in the Trinity. And that conversation led to a side conversation about this very moment in time. And we began to talk about how hard it is to understand all that was going on in that moment. And as I studied this week, I want to read a couple of people that I read because I think it's important for us to hear this. So, so one of the authors, Hagner, says as he says, this is one of the most impenetrable mysteries of the entire gospel narrative. And perhaps it is best simply to let the words stand as they are, stark in their impenetrability to us as mortal. He's pointing out, and I agree with him, that at some level, this moment in time, this Jesus on the cross in his passion, in his love, in his suffering for us, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is beyond our, our ability to truly understand. It is enormously difficult for us to know what was going on there. Uh, one of my favorite uh, preachers is C.S. Spurgeon, and Spurgeon wrote these words, and I wish I could do it in a good British accent, but I can't, so just, just listen to what Spurgeon wrote. He said, our Lord was then in the darkest part of his way. He had trodden the winepress now for hours, and the work was almost finished. He had reached the culmination point of his anguish. This is his dolorous lament from the lowest pit of misery. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I do not think that the records of time or even eternity contain a sentence more full of anguish. Here the wormwood, the gall, and, and all the other bitterness are outdone. 
Here you may look as into the vast abyss, and though you strain your eyes and gaze till your sight fails you, yet you perceive no bottom. It is measureless, unfathomable, and inconceivable. This anguish of the Savior on your behalf and mine is no more to be measured and weighed than the sin which needed it or the love which endured it. We will adore what we cannot comprehend. Spurgeon says that this moment in time, it's measureless, it's unfathomable, it's inconceivable, but I love the way he ends. He says, but we will adore what we cannot understand. That there's this picture of, of being brought into the moment and realizing all that's going on in that moment on the cross. But I want you to recognize that darkness in the scriptures usually represents hell. More often is darkness used to describe hell than fire. That's the metaphor that's most commonly used. And so we have this, this picture of hell and, 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 and hell exists and heaven exists apart from time, apart from a place. But really what, what hell and heaven, what, what heaven is, is, is being in the presence of God. And what hell is, is being cast out from the presence of God. That's the darkness that's described in scripture. So here we have God, Jesus, hanging on the cross, taking on the sins of the world. And darkness is entering into the world. And Jesus is entering to a place that he's never been before. Separation from God and into the darkness of the world. I love that Tim Keller points out that Jesus didn't hang on the cross and scream, my hands, my feet. Nor did he say, my friends have all abandoned me. His anguish is that his father is separated from him. Why have you abandoned me? That's the deep anguish of the passion or the love of Christ. But what we do know is that when he cried out those words, they weren't just random words that came to his mind. He was quoting scripture. He was quoting Psalm 22. And I think the, it's important for us to know why would, he, why would he quote Psalm 22? It's not just that he knew the beginning of the psalm. Jesus knew the entire psalm. So what I want to do is I want to just read some excerpts from Psalm 22. Psalm 22. And, and here's what I want you to keep in mind. This was written a thousand years before Jesus. A thousand years, these words were penned. And if you know the story of the gospel, if you know the story of the crucifixion, just, just pay attention to all of the words that describe exactly what happened to Jesus. The words in Psalm 22, written a thousand years before Jesus, says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Verse 14, he says, I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart has, has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried like, like postured. In my tongue, it sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Verse 16 says, dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All of my bones are on display. He hung there naked. All of his bones on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. That actually happened. Jesus knew the rest of the psalm and it was this description of, of him. This was the, the prophecy of many of the things that were going to happen to him. And, and he knew that and so he's quoting the psalm. But the psalm continues in verse 27. It says, I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all of you descendants of Israel. 
verse 24, listen, it says, For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. There's victory in the psalm. Jesus knew that there was victory. In that moment of anguish, he knew it wasn't the end of the story. It was still painful. It was still difficult. But he wanted to make sure we all knew that, that, that he cried out and God heard his cry. He hears the cries of the afflicted one. It's a beautiful picture of, of the victory. And I think Jesus wanted us all to be, be thinking of the fact that this is not the end of the story. That there's more going on here than just the fact that Jesus dies on the cross. In that moment of passion or love or suffering for the sins of the world, Jesus took on all of our sins. He took on our rebellion. He took on our, our, our hate. He took on our shame. He took on our, our turning on God. And in that moment, God turned his back on Jesus and created anguish. And he cries out in his pain, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 50 reads that when Jesus had cried out, we're back to Matthew, by the way, when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. He, he died. The work of the cross was finished, and in that moment, everything changed. The economy with God absolutely changed in that very moment. Look at verse 51. It says, at that moment, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rock split. I want to just put this in perspective a little bit. The curtain that we're talking about, 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and it says that it was as thick as a man's hand. So probably three to four inches thick. Some of the writings of the day said that you could put a team of horses on the two corners of the, of the temple veil and they would not be able to pull it apart. They wouldn't be able to tear it. So, so just to give you a perspective, that this wasn't some flimsy sheet of, of cloth that was hanging up there. Three inches thick of cloth is saying something. So verse 51 says this three, four inch thick curtain. Think about the strength of that, was torn. And I love this. It says it was torn from top to bottom. It started above. It started at the top. It started with God. I love the fact that God did this. That God tore the curtain from top to bottom. It is an act of God. It's a reminder to us that we're saved by grace through faith and that we don't work to do anything, that we don't work to earn our way to the presence of God. God has done all the work for us and the curtain has been torn the curtain has been removed the curtain existed to to veil the presence of God only in the holy of holies only once a year could only one priest go in there and represent the people into the presence of God and suddenly the veil is torn and the presence of God is made available to all of us Amen. not because we've done anything but because of the work of God an enormous Cosmic event, right? The earth shakes and rocks split. I, I also read this week, and I love this, that, that if you taken core samples in Jerusalem, uh, right, right in that area, and in the core samples, because of the way the sediment lies, they can tell that there was a major earthquake between 26 and 36. Fascinating, isn't it, that, that science and geology actually holds up to the truth of Scripture. Another reminder that this isn't just a story. This isn't just some story that we tell. This is truth. This is historically accurate. There was an earthquake. The, the earth shook. The rock split. And the curtain was torn from top to bottom. The presence of God is available to all of us. But the question is, is that our reality? Is that really how we live our lives? 
This is the genesis, if you will, of the church without curtains. The death and the resurrection of Jesus tore the curtain in two, but somehow in our journey, we continue to put up curtains. We continue to try to hide from God. We continue to try to flee from his presence. We find all kinds of ways to be dishonest with ourselves and dishonest with God and dishonest with other people. We put up curtains and we veil ourselves or try to veil ourselves from the presence of God. A church without curtains is a church where we really know God and love God. A church without curtains is a place where we are truly known and loved, not just by God, but by other people. It's a church without pretense where we don't have to pretend about anything. I think as we participate in this study over the next eight weeks, it's going to give us language. It's not going to change everything. We're not going to be a church without curtains at the end of eight weeks. But we may begin our, a journey of becoming a church without curtains. We may just in our own journey with God understand how we put up curtains on a regular basis and try to hide ourselves with God. It'll give us language. It'll give us momentum of moving towards us. And over the next few years, we can actually become a church without curtains. I believe that we're setting out on a journey. And I want to encourage you to be part of the journey. You saw all of those people standing up here. Those are all, some of those small groups haven't even gotten people signed up for them uh, that they need. And they haven't signed up. So if in your bulletin is this little yellow sheet. Fill it out. Drop it off. You need to be on the journey with us. Give it to the information counter. Let us get you plugged into one of these groups. Be a part of the journey that God has put us on. I find my thoughts going back to those Facebook posts all week and who are the people that, that people wanted to spend the afternoon with and what is it about them and the truth of the matter is the reason people wanted to spend the afternoon with them is because of their image of the person, right? They had this image of the person that made the, something desirable for them to, to hang out with and the fact is if we had a different image of God, we might have a greater desire to hang out with them. If we had a different image in our mind of God, but see, if God for you is just this cosmic judge just waiting to punish you when you screw up, who wants to hang out with the principal, right? Who wants to hang out with somebody that's waiting to, to just judge him? Or when you think about God, if your main emotion is guilt or shame, who wants more of that? Who wants to hang out with somebody that's just going to make them feel guilty or shameful, if God for you is this father figure who is never satisfied no matter what you do, he always wants more. He's never satisfied. Who wants to hang out with that? Or maybe for you, God is indifferent. He's just this cosmic force. I believe in God. Yeah, God had created the heavens and the earth, but God doesn't really care about me. God doesn't know me. God, God's just like this force that's out there. Who wants to hang out with a cosmic force that doesn't know anything about you? But how different would it be if we really knew God the way the psalmist knew God? If we really knew how much God loved us and how much God cared for us, Psalm 139, we're going to spend some time really unpacking Psalm 139 in a few weeks as part of a church without curtains. But let me just read for you a few verses from Psalm 139. Verse 7 says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? So he's talking about being in the presence of God. Verse 17, he says, how precious also are your thoughts to me. Oh God, how great the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in numbers than the sand. When I awake... I am still with you. David was in awe of how much God loved him. David actually writes, how precious are your thoughts to me? How precious are your thoughts to me? Do you know that God thinks about you? Do you know that you are on God's mind? 
How precious are God's thoughts of you. So many thoughts of you that you can't even count them. How amazing that God is not indifferent. God knows everything about your life and he thinks about you. How numerous and precious are God's thoughts of you. God is not just a judge who's out there ready to bring the hammer. He is anything but an indifferent God. And, and what he wants to do is free you from shame and free you from guilt. It is just the opposite of those images that we have that keep us from running to God, that keeps us from clearing our schedules in the afternoon to hang out with God the way we would if Bono called and said, hey, Doug, I want to spend the afternoon with you. I would change everything to make that happen. But if we knew God, the way God wants to be known, we would change everything to hang out with God. Amen. What if we really knew deep in our spirit, God is our Father? And here's the deal. So the disciples came to, to Jesus and they said, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? We see that you are a, a, a person of prayer. We see you praying, and we don't know how to pray like you pray. Would you teach us to pray? And he said, I will. And when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, and I'm guessing like many of us, many of them were done at that moment. Because their image of father was tainted by whatever earthly father they had. So some of you suffered horrendous abuse by your father. Some of you were abandoned by your father. Some of you were ignored by your father. The fact of the matter is, when we have this tainted, warped father figure image in our mind, the idea of going to God the Father screws us up and keeps us from coming to God. It gives us a false image of God that says, I don't want to hang out with a father if they're anything like the father I've had. But what if we knew God as a father who is our greatest champion? What if you knew God as a father who loves you beyond your wildest imagination, who loves you not because you did anything, but because he's your dad? He loves you because you're you. He loves you because he made you. He loves you because he sees you and his thoughts are of you and he, and he wants to be with you. What if we really grasp that God loves us beyond our wildest imagination and he is a good father who desires to hang out? How more likely would we be to, to clear our schedules and to make time to be with God? A church without curtains is a church where we can be honest with ourselves, honest with God, and honest with each other. What if we could sit in small groups and we could actually say, you know what? I don't enjoy my quiet time with God. What if we sat in small groups and we said, I, I know I don't desire God like I should. Or, or what if you could actually say to your friends and, 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 and other people in a small group, you know what? God is just scary and intimidating to me. What if we created a place that was safe enough that you could say, you know what, the thought of hanging out with Bono sounds like a lot more fun than an afternoon sitting with Jesus. Think about those honest conversations. What would come out of those, those, those honest confessions about where we are and how we would be able to pray more intelligently for one another, how we'd be able to encourage one another along the way. It would change everything about the church if we got to the place where we could just honestly bring ourselves and not have to put on pretenses, not have to pretend like we have together, where we can say, look, God doesn't make sense to me today because sometimes the mystery of God doesn't make sense in our pain, in our affliction. Sometimes we just need to put it on the table. And I want us to be a church where we can just lay that all out there, not so that we can fix one another, but so that we can encourage and pray for one another and so that we can invite the Spirit of God into those conversations and see what he does.
There is this amazing prayer in Ephesians that's become sort of a mantra uh, for us. I'm not even sure what the word mantra means. Am I using that word right? Meg, am I using that word right? Okay, good. Uh, it's, it's, it's sort of a theme. It, it came about a year and a half ago, and we've just been going back to it. You keep seeing us talk about immeasurably more. It came out of this prayer. And I want to read the prayer for you. It's Ephesians, uh, and it's chapter 3, if you want to look it up, verses 14 through 21. Paul has spent three chapters in Ephesians talking about how amazing God is and all that God has done for us and who we are in Christ and this, this redemptive work of God and that he's, he's available to us and God is accessible. And so he's, he's really just laid out this, this a ton of theology about all we have in Christ. And then he says, for this reason, because of all of that, for this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you would have God in your life. I pray that the presence of God would be in you and moving through you. I pray that you would have the power of God at work in you, he says. How many of you want more of God's power in your life? Amen. He says, he keeps, he keeps praying, he says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love. And that's the key. Rooted and established in love. I pray that you would understand exactly what, what, what I did for you. I pray that you would even begin to comprehend the, the anguish and the pain of the passion of Christ as he hung on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did it for you. And he did it for me. So that we could enter into the presence of God. He says, I pray that you would be rooted and established in that love, that you may have the power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how high... How long, how wide, how deep is the love of Christ? And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Paul says, I pray that you would know God's love. I pray that you would know how high and wide and long. I pray that you would know God's love because you see it's God's love that changes everything. It's knowing God's love that makes us want to stand in his presence. It's knowing God's love that casts out all of our anxiety. It's God's love that casts out all of our fear. It's God's love that takes away all of our shame. It's God's love that changes who we are. And Paul says, if you just knew God's love, then the power of God would be unleashed in you. So the journey we're going to go on together is to to try and understand more and more God's love, how he loves us and all that he's done for us. Paul ends his prayer by saying this. He says, now him too is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. To him be the glory in the church. To him be the glory at Grace Community Church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. My prayer for you is that you would join us on the journey of a church without curtains. My prayer for you is that you would know God's love more and more and more and the knowledge of his love would unleash the power of God in your life. I pray that you would change your schedule to hang out with God because you just want to be in his presence. You just want to experience. You just want to talk to him. You just want to hear him speak into your life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you that you were willing to hang on the cross. Thank you for your passion for us. Thank you for your suffering so that we could stand in the presence of God. Thank you that you tore the curtain from top to bottom. I do not have to figure out a creative way to get into your presence. I just have to be in your presence. 
Thank you that you love me in spite of my shortcomings and my sin. Thank you that you love every person in this room beyond their wildest imagining. Lord, help us to grow in our knowledge of you as our Abba Father. Lord, ignite a flame in our hearts to want to spend time in your presence. Lord, help us to be a church without curtains. Lord, I pray that you would stir in the hearts of the people who have, who have been afraid to step into a small group, that you would just encourage them to fill out the form, to be a part of a group, to see what God's going to do in and through this study. Bless this church. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you have done for us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. You have a great Sunday. God bless you.